You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, good morning, and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Ahmad Khan, and you're listening live to Weekend World on today, Sunday, the 24th of July, 2022. The time is two minutes past ten. On Weekend World, we uh, look at the week's news, we go behind the headlines, we look at some of the detail of things that are happening around the world, and I'm very lucky to be joined in the studio today by regular contributor Amir Malik. Assalamu alaikum, Amir. Assalamu alaikum, Ahmad. Pleasure to be here. Amir, really good to have you in the studio, live as it were. Um, it's... Uh, for the last few a few years, it's been challenging, to say the least, to have uh, uh, live studio uh, live studio guests here. Uh, but uh, we're getting back to some normality now. So really, really good to have you here, and um, lots to talk about, lots to discuss. I mean, here in the UK, in terms of things that are happening, I think uh, it's fair to say. I know uh, I mean, you spend a lot of your time in the Middle East, but I think it's fair to say we've had our fair taste of hot weather here in the UK. Um, lovely morning this morning here in London. It's sunny. Um, it's not too hot, um, but the last week or so has has been pretty hot, and lots of discussion in the media around questions of climate change and everything else. But uh, but also questions about how to cope with the hot weather. Um, you come from somewhere with uh, uh, su- of sunnier climes and and hotter weather. Um, what lessons do you think you you've got to impart for people here in the UK who struggle to cope with the heat? Well, I think. Um this would in in many parts of the world. I I, I was actually in Africa two days ago, and uh, it was slightly hotter than here, and it was just another normal day. I think part of it is the fact that we're just not used to it, and part mm. of it is that we aren't set up for that. The air conditioning and all the other things that y- you get in in other parts of the world. You know, we're, to be honest, we're not really set up for the extreme cold or extreme weather or even leaves if we have too many of them fall. So mm. <laughs> I, th- I think because we have so many different uh, climates uh, in England, in Britain, we, we end up um, not really being able to be ready for any of them. Mm. Mm. So <laughs> we're good with rain just about. But I guess the serious point, the infrastructure in this country, which was built um, many, many years ago now, really, whether it's housing stock or, or rail infrastructure, road infrastructure, um, was really not designed for the sort of weather that we do get here in the in the UK, and I guess that that really comes to the to the question of um, as a waning imperial power, whose uh, who, <laughs> whose infrastructure um, is is now outdated. In order to continue to be relevant and productive and and, and be able to uh, have uh, continued economic clout in the world, um, there's going to have to be a lot of investment in this sort of thing, isn't there? I, th- I think so. I think Britain uh, has always, um, be, I think we've been in the last few decades, been a little bit behind in infrastructure investment. Um, it's also a very, it's usually a very good way to kickstart the economy when things are down. Invest in infrastructure. I think with the, um, I think it, it also links a lot to the energy crisis in the country in terms of weaning ourselves off fossil fuels and trying to get into renewable forms of energy. That, that we can harness some of this this great heat and uh, increasing, you know, I mean, you talk about climate change, but actually, you know, things like if you're having hotter summers, you're going to get more solar if you have that. If if climate change also means you're going to get m- more wind and and uh, and uh, more blustery autumns and winters, well, you know, the wind uh, wind farms can pick up on that as well. So there is, I think, there 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 could be an upside. If we invest in it, I think a lot of big companies are also looking at investing in this space 
in in Britain, you know, people like companies like British Petroleum have actually said, you know, we're going to move away from oil and go into renewables. So I think I think there's actually a lot of opportunity in in the UK. Um, you know, we've got a, a large base, you know, uh, tens of millions of people who need energy, who use a lot of it. And I think uh, harnessing some of that that extreme heat would actually be good for us. I mean, we've we've never really invested uh, large scale in solar energy here in the UK, either either domestically or or on on any sort of uh, energy production uh, uh, level. Uh, perhaps so, perhaps an opportunity there. And and but I mean, certainly there's there's lots of different ways of, of heating and cooling homes, which we are not really taking advantage of the the systems that we have in the UK at the moment of, of central heating are, are very outdated and and certainly don't support the. Uh, the sorts of ways in which we're going to have to think about um, uh, looking after our homes in the future. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at places like the US, I mean, they, uh, most homes, uh, they don't have central heating, they just have central heating and cooling, which mm. means basically you heat one boiler and then that either sends hot air or cold air, depending on what you need. I think we're probably going to have to rethink how we build homes, how mm. we insulate them, um, and, and also how we power them. I think it's, it's, you know, if you look at the way the energy prices are going at the moment, whether it's hot or cold, it's going to be a challenge mm. for, for us and for, for a lot of the people who just can't pay the bills. And um, and that's that's only going to get worse. So I think it's time to invest in, in, in a different way of constructing our homes and the way we live. And I think solar is a good way to start. But there's so many others. You've got ground heat sources. Mm. Uh, also to cool and heat your home. There's um, There's so many ways that can be done. And I think it's time. And a lot of noise being made about the the ground pumps at the moment as a way of uh, both heating and cooling and and having hot water in the in the summertime as well. Um, so moving the conversation on now, lots lots happening in the news. One of the one of the things which has hit the headlines after after all of the heat, a lot of disruption at the railways, at uh, um, airports over the last few weeks, but also at the port of Dover. Port of Dover, the, the iconic British port, the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, some see it as the as the pride of Britain and uh, and emblematic of uh, our success or failure. And reports of huge queues up the motorway uh, coming up to the Port of Dover, and lots of blame being thrown about, and, and something of a spat uh, between mm-hmm. the UK government and the French government, and. Um, uh, a minister by the name of um, Liz Truss, I think I've got the name correct, um, who who has been has been saying that uh, it's all the fault of the the French, uh, and they and they need to fix it, uh, and that it is uh, avoidable and unacceptable um, that this situation has been created. And the French are saying, well, they're they're doing everything that they can. Uh, there's no need to blame the French authorities for the traffic jams in Dover. Um, and this is all because of Brexit. It's all your fault. And if you hadn't done Brexit, then we wouldn't have this issue at all. And of course, it's more complicated than that. And of course, it's to do with a, a post-pandemic uh, challenge around getting uh, people into uh, into work, having uh, got rid of a lot of people, having fired people from, from uh, jobs within the transport industry. Um, and uh, a huge, a huge amount in terms of changes to the way in which the industry works, and and a lack of modernisation. At the end of the day, though, for that poor person who's trying to cross the channel and uh, get on their holiday, um, or 
for the person who is trying to transport goods in a refrigerated um, lorry uh, either to, to France uh, or back uh, from the continent into the UK, it's a huge headache. Absolutely. I mean, it, the you know, we, we've all, many of us remember our summer holidays, you know, driving across uh, from Dover in, into, into Calais and then on to France and Germany and other places. The fact that we've we've gone backwards to me is something that is, you know, d- despite the political ramifications of Brexit, you know, you would, one would think that the very basic idea of being able to move around would be somehow taken into account. You know, f- I can understand the, the ideas for increased sovereignty and Britain making its own decisions. I can, I can certainly understand the overreach of, of Brussels. But I think, I think we all are poorer for it. The fact that you know we used to you know just literally you know pick up pick up our passports and just drive over and it was there was never any issue and now looking back at it I am also planning to 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 go in the next few weeks and I'm absolutely dreading it I think it's um I, I think it's a very sad uh, comment on the fact that we've been moving forward for decades getting good integration with Europe and making it so easy for, for both people and for trade. I mean, tra- trade is important. It affects all of our lives, not just the people working in it, but we receive those goods and services and we we rely on them and vice versa. And I think we've gone backwards. And I think, yes, Brexit, there's a part of it has to be the, bre- you know, the, the Brexit and everything else that was done. But a part of it is, um, I think for me, it's, a, it's quite a sad state of affairs and something we should, I think, this is a this is a time for people to, to to speak up and and see what can be done to produce better working with Europe. This can't go on. I mean, I guess politically speaking, it it goes to the heart of some of the challenges challenges that we've got in terms of UK politics, doesn't it? Because um, some of the some of the questions as we look at the leadership debate, which is going on now, some of the questions really are around um, the the tone of the debate, the fact that it is very much still focused on a lot of very right-wing policies, questions of immigration, questions of sovereignty, questions of control. And and this is what's led us to, to Brexit. And uh, unfortunately, it feels as if that uh, narrative and that conversation is, is continuing. How much of a problem do you think that is that is going to be moving forward? And do you, we've, we've talked about on this program a a great deal the fact that there's been in general in um, the industrialized nations a shift to the right in terms of politics and and the narrative around uh, around rights and around um, issues of of, uh, uh, freedom of of religion as well Uh, how much of a problem do you think that is going to be here in the UK moving forward and and how much of a challenge do you think that's going to create for the ordinary person and and for uh, the economy as well as a as a consequence of issues such as um, Brexit or reducing the number of uh, people that can come into the country to work. I think there's we probably have to separate out a few of the issues. If you look at Britain, if you take a step back and look at Britain versus other European nations, generally, even though things are moving towards the right, we have always been much more of an inclusive country, and I think I think sometimes we forget that. You know, if you go to, for example, if you go to the police and you see a Sikh man, you know, there's a police turban for him. 
Though that may be very small and symbolic, but what it says is that Britain, Britain's view of other cultures and is that you're British, you're part of our culture. We will we will assimilate, and people will we respect people's differences. If you do, if you if you go in other parts of Europe, that doesn't happen. You don't see those things. People say that if you want to be integrated, integration means you have to leave behind your own um, cultural norms and you have to adapt adopt all of those of your country. Otherwise, you're not part of. You know, if you look at France, they're having a terrible time with their North African Muslim um, immigrants. And if you're in France, if you want, if you dress and behave exactly like an average French person, you're res you're respected. But if you look and feel m Muslim, then it's a problem. Even though you may have been born there, that you may be second or third generation French. So I think I think Britain, even though things are moving towards the right, I think has always had a much more inclusive nature. Um, when we saw that also when these Europeans moved here, you know, good integration um, into 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 the work culture, and I think that's something which Britain has to understand that bringing people in, part of it is about providing opportunities and actually growing your economy um, through that increased productivity, and stopping that isn't suddenly going to make you more productive. Um, America, Canada, a lot of the nations like you know Australia and others their growth is reliant on a steady stream of people coming in at the bottom of the pyramid and, and working their way up. I mean, that's really what a capitalist economy does. You know, when it's working well, <laughs> you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way up. And that's, and I think if we, if we start to break those structures down, then we will live with these consequences. And I think given the, in a post-pandemic world, I think we'll have to re start rethinking some of that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's open borders. It might mean it might, it might mean immigration in a way that is allowable and controlled and managed. Fine. We, we need to have things in place. We need rule of law. All of those things are respected. But I think the fundamental ideas of immigration equals bad, I think those are, are being increasingly outdated. Thank you. And I, and I guess the thing that you point to there, which is, um, as far as the UK is concerned, something for us to be proud of in terms of that tolerance, that inclusivity, and something that has been clearly developed over time. I mean, you, you couldn't say if you went back to the 70s and 80s, and certainly a time when we were growing up, you couldn't say that it felt like Britain was an inclusive country. Things have changed. Things have changed significantly in that time, which is not to say that there isn't still some way to go. There are clearly issues around racism within British society still. But things have got better. That is something precious. That is something to be protected. And um, I guess the, the part of the challenge around the politics is that if that rhetoric were to continue, that those principles are, are in danger and they, they ought to be protected um, at, uh, at great cost if, if necessary. And, uh, and I guess if you, if you look at some of the um, politicians that we see uh, within the Conservative Party at the moment, on one level, you could say, well, fantastic role models for young Asians coming up here in the UK at the moment. So they can see um, Asian politicians, they can see people with brown skin, frankly speaking, in positions of power. And so that that could be me, is, is, is part of uh, what they uh, are able to see. But I guess it's not just about what they see, it's about what they hear as well. And what, what are those politicians actually saying? And are they saying the sorts of things 
that they would expect to hear that are that chime with the principles that would allow that sort of inclusivity and tolerance to to continue uh, in uh, here in here in the UK. And I guess that that that's a question, and that is uh, for some people that's a concern. I think you're absolutely right, and I think. You know, seeing the faces you see in society is, I would say, is a much, much richer landscape, both from a gender standpoint as well as the racial standpoint. And I think Britain, you know, as a nation, we should be very proud of that. When you see people you can, re- you know, you can relate to in the front lines, you know, you have the mayor of London, you have people in the Tory leadership race from ethnic backgrounds. You, you, what you see is the result of decades of inclusivity. Now. If if then the narrative starts to switch that we are more divided and that we are you know that that the Britain needs to move away from that, then I think it starts to go backwards. Um, and you're absolutely right that it's not just the, the faces they see, but exactly what what are they saying? And it's and it's almost sometimes ironic when you hear those same people who have benefited from that inclusivity and have climbed the ladder, have climbed that very inclusive ladder but then want to pull it up. And I think to, sometimes that's, the, I guess that's just basic human, you know, self-preservation is, well, I've made it. Um, do I necessarily want others to make it? Well, hopefully you do, but you don't always see it when you see some of the narratives. But but I think Britain, definitely since the time when we were growing up, Amal, I think you, we, we, are, we are in a better place despite the increasing polarization in society. We are in a much better place now. The question is: Are we moving in the right direction? We're in a better place, but can we can we keep the the trajectory positive and upwards? I think is the key challenge for us. Thank you for that, Amr. And I guess that question is one that that will continue to be uh, a point of debate within UK politics over the of, certainly over the coming months as the as the leadership. Uh, contest within the Conservative Party continues, but certainly within wider UK politics over the coming years uh, as uh, general elections happen and as uh, other opportunities for people to uh, voice their uh, opinions on on the nature of the country that they uh, want to live in um, continues. And I guess one one final thought or question on, on the queues uh, coming into Dover and, and the, the, the wider issues around uh, the sorts of challenges it it is framed as a question of well it's the it's the fault of the europeans it's it's you know it's not our fault it's nothing to do with us if they if they were only to fix the problem i guess if you turn the whole question around then it is equally a challenge for french tourists or european tourists wanting to come into the uk um and again it's to our disadvantage uh, that they're not able to come in, but it, it is also a, a significant, a, a significant annoyance for those individuals as well. It really is in no one's interest. Politics aside, it's in no one's interest for these sorts of delays, for this sort of friction to be happening at the border between the United Kingdom and, and Europe. And I don't think any politician would would argue that it that was the case, even if, uh, unfortunately, the sorts of policies uh, policies that they posit. Um, uh, make make that a challenge. I mean, what, what, how do you think that can be squared? I mean, if you had a, if you had a uh, a politician of that ilk in front of you at the moment, what 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 argument? Uh, putting you on the spot here, I'm, I'm a, what argument would you put forward as to as to 
you know, we we need to make this better. I think this the clear case is an economic one. Um, you know, human ac- activity creates economic opportunity. You know, when you get up in the morning and turn on your car and decide to do something, drive somewhere, go somewhere, you know, you you're going to spend and you're going to use resources. You're going to use energy. Um, but you're you're also creating opportunities for others. You know, you go and buy in a shop. That's somebody else's job. Um, you know, whether we like it or not, and whatever your left or right leaning views are, you, it's an immutable fact that human activity creates economic opportunity. And if we are creating friction, we are creating barriers, whether that's by road or rail or any other way, then we all lose. Um, whether that's tourists coming in or us being able to go out, uh, we we are we are at a loss. And so the, the you know if, if nothing else, this is a, an economic argument. You know, activity human human activity creates economic opportunity, and I think there's there's I think everyone can understand that. And if we if we don't do something, you know, it's going to limit the way in which um, we we are able to get out of the the, the pandemic and the issues or the economic decline that we've seen over the last uh, few years. And uh, w- you know we won't be able to make it out. We won't be able to pay our national debt. So we need to <laughs> we need to get out. We need to get out and spend and uh, and and clear these these frictions so that we can um, we can live freer and happier. Hopefully. Thank you. I'm, oh, I'm convinced. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a politician. Or fortunately, I'm not a politician. Um, moving the conversation on. Uh, on. Thank you for that. And moving the conversation on. Um, a bit of a bit of a philosophical challenge for you now, uh, Ahmed. Um, what does it mean to be sentient, and can a computer algorithm achieve sentience? It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit much for a Sunday morning. Well, I know that is that is heavy. Um, so, so in, interestingly, this isn't this isn't actually very new. Um, this has been something that you know many of the um, the, the, the first. Uh, folks who who looked at computers and whether some whether computationally you could achieve some sense of reality and as we've understood the brain better we've realized that the brain in many ways is an extremely complex computer um, <clears throat> where you know the as as your neurons fire you know there are certain you know you've got information and data being transferred and stored so if you were to be able to create that artificially um, you know could that could that be considered real? But I think, you know, we're, we're getting into the world of the things that people like Alan Turing envisaged, you know, we have the Turing test of would you be able to test? And if you actually go into it, I mean, the science might be dry, but the, 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 the basic uh, ideas are now the realm where they can start to be tested. You know, you could be chatting with a bot. And for a while, you may not realize whether the, the person on the other end is a person. Mm. And it's the point is, at what point can you, could, could you get away with it indefinitely? If so, then the, the Turing test will say, well, you're talking to a being who understands. But understanding and being, you know, from a biological standpoint, then you really get into not in the realm of computing, but it's the realm of philosophy. Yeah. Should, should we just frame this a little bit and, and talk, about, talk about the news behind this? And this is that Google has fired a software engineer, um, who uh, Blake Lemoyne, who claimed, he made a claim, he went out to the media and he made this claim that a chatbot that had been developed in-house at Google um, was 
I mean, alive, for want of a better word. It was sentient. It was a being. It was it was a person. Um, and he made this claim based on conversations that he had with the chatbot. Now, this chatbot was designed mm. to have conversations. It was designed to be a system that allowed you to have natural language conversation. Mm. So it was designed for that purpose. But he had a series of conversations with this system and he felt that the responses that it gave were so real mm. that it felt to him like this algorithm, this computer system, was um, alive and for want of a better person, uh, want of a better term, a person, a real person, um, and a person that was also afraid of being turned off. Now, this this sounds like um, a lot of science fiction <laughs> programs that we. Uh, watch growing up, Amir. Uh, yep. One thinks of two thousand and one Space Odyssey, absolutely, um, and uh, uh, and the computer Hal, who was who was concerned, worried about about being turned off, was also very conflicted because of its own its own intelligence and and some might argue its own its own humanity. Um, and so this isn't, as you said, this is not a new idea. But um, uh, Google said, well, he's jumped the gun here. It's not <laughs> this system is not alive, and and. And the the claims that he's making are nonsense, and we've been through this with him. And and uh, clearly, what he's done is is uh, uh, is not appropriate. And so, um, uh, uh, off with you. You know, he's, he's been fired. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it was as much. I think it was probably l l potentially less about the science of it, and more that he'd probably leaked um, yeah. and probably didn't. You know, Google probably doesn't want people to get freaked out yeah. that it's sending bots, sentient bots, uh, in, given that Google is a part of our lives in a way that uh, probably more intimate than many of our personal relationships. I don't think it wants that. I mean, I mean you've got, uh, I don't know if you have Google Home at, the, uh, at home or, or, or any other um, system, uh, smart smart home system, but do you, are you going to start thanking them now after you, they've uh, um, done something for you just in case? Well, I always thank everyone, Hamad, you know, regardless of who it is, when it, where it is, I always say thank you. So I, I wouldn't mind that. But but I think I, I think the, the the concept that, you know, a bot, which is, you know, a, a group of algorithms, you know, essentially equations written down that start to understand each other. You know, you, you what you realize very quickly when you extrapolate from that is that they are very good at doing the thing you've trained them to do. Mm. So if you've trained this bot to uh, in basic philosophy and understanding how feelings work and those things, it will be very good at that. You ask that bot to go make a cup of tea and they'll be absolutely useless at it, mm. even worse than I am. And I'm not very good. So the point is that I think AI, as it develops, this point, the idea of AI that, f that, that people, that Hollywood and everyone is scared of, and even as an engineer, I would say, is, is, quite, is, is where you have the point of convergence, where mm. all the little capabilities that AI has that is very good in certain things can all come together to produce either a being, a robot, or something that can actually do everything a thousand times, million times better than any human, and that that then could take over systems in the world because it's already embedded. That is a very real fear, and people like Elon Musk have, have raised that fear, and so have others. And you, but you could see that, because if a system that is embedded into everything that can talk to the entire internet and the world and the banking systems... But that uh, that whole system then starts to become aware and is able to then act on its own 
um, devices, that is a very scary world for us. But mm. I, I don't think we're there yet, and I don't think, I don't think Lambda, the Google, the the the, the bot, the algorithm is there yet either. But you know, it is a. But you know, Google. One of the great things that people don't know about Google, I think, is that um, speaking to engineers who've worked there, is that they. So the way their job works is you you do your day job, which is 80, 70, mm. 80% of your job, but you're also allowed to spend 10, 20% of your time doing whatever you f- enjoy doing. And I think part of this comes out of that. People come up with crazy ideas, things that are just fun for them, and they just work on them. They get obsessed over them, and you know, com- people who are into computers and engineers can get really obsessive about mm. their little pet project. And a lot of Google's best products come out of that. You know, Google Maps was one of them. There's a number of other ones that just came out of that. So I think, I think any step forward in innovation comes with these inherent risks, mm, mm. and it's just a point of how how do we how can we get the best out of those benefits, but try to minimize the negative impacts. Because if you think if you if you take a broader perspective, look at you know social media and others, there's great things on social media. People can get their voice out. It's great, great algorithms there. But it's also damaging and for children and, and all the things we've seen, the negative impacts. So how do we, you know, how do we work with that? I think that's what a lot of this is really about, is how do we, mm. how do we match a social progress with technological progress and our values and yeah. what we believe in. And I guess what we're talking about is the unintended consequences, isn't yeah. it? It's the things that we don't see as a, as a system is developed. And, and one of the worries around systems like this is that if they do start to do things that are unexpected and that, and that uh, um, perhaps may have negative consequences. But go, going back to this broader question, and you, you raised the, the question of the tu- what's known as the Turing test. So if a computer system, if I were to have a, com- and, and it really is, is at the heart of this, of this question around Lambda and, and the, the Google chatbot, that if, if a system were able to fool me into thinking that it were a person, then, for all intents and purposes, it were a person, yep. and and it had it would have achieved sentience. But I guess it really goes to what what perhaps Turing did not anticipate is is what you have drawn out there, which is that the ability to have a conversation is one very specific type of intelligence, yep. but it is not what we might call general intelligence. And in yep. AI, there is this concept of general intelligence, which is seen as the holy grail of of yep. AI research. Yeah. Uh, and it, and if you were to get a system, develop a system that were to truly be able to achieve general intelligence, which which is what we have as human beings, so that it would be able to pick up a skill or a way of, of doing something and learn independently and on its own, based only on its experience of the world and trial and error, then that system would be truly, for all intents and purposes, sentient. And I guess... My next question to you is, Amr, do you think that could be achieved? Well, I think if you look at the complexity of biological systems, there, you know, we learn as engineers, we learn from biology, um, aircraft, the most complex structures. If you look at aerospace structures, you know, the 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 shell of the shuttle is built on the structure of the cross section of the skull, for example. That's how you get very mm. light and extremely hard structures that can withstand a lot of damage. So as we look towards nature, we, we're starting to understand, and we're really still scratching the surface of how our brain works, to be honest, you know. And I think, are we are we close? I think I think we're getting, I think we're increasing in the speed at which we get there. But we are 
we are and we're we're increasing in pace as technology comes together but i think we're still very far away from the idea of convergence or of general intelligence you know i think i think there's probably a lot more that's going to happen in terms of human um and tech integration i think that's something which is a very interesting frontier you know that that elon musk speaks about is could you could you download the brain could you link up to your own mind and that then starts to bring the idea of i think it brings us closer to the idea that something which isn't life becomes life but the idea of what defines something as being living you know if you if you take a step back and look at it from the from a universe standpoint you know we are made of building blocks that were that were created in the center of stars and we are the universe understanding and becoming alive if you think about it we you know for, and for me that's one of the most awe inspiring concepts is that we are the realization of the universe knowing itself and you know those particles that were created in the middle of stars coming alive and understanding that they exist for me that's spectacular now uh, could that be endowed on silicon and others and may- maybe why not i mean but you know if you bring it back back to islam and what god tells us is that you know we we are created in a certain way there is something that's greater than just the atoms understanding who they are those molecules kind of coming into consciousness life is more than that there is an element of spirituality when when god talks about the first man you know i think certainly in 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 our jamaat's concept of consciousness became wasn't that when beings became sentient but it was when a being could understand that he has a higher purpose and that he could communicate with his creator that was what adam was essentially it wasn't the first literal human being it was the first human being who who was able to really understand his master and lord so you know could 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 computers at that point realize that well interesting to mm. be seen mm. i mean <clears throat> i guess in in principle of uh, talking about this from a from an islamic perspective um as you say there is the 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 concept within islam as within many other religions the idea of the spirit mm. but the idea that that could somehow be en- endowed on um on another substrate as it were it is isn't necessarily um uh out of the realms of possibility but i guess from an islamic perspective the only question that, that really arises is that we have an understanding that the development of human spirituality is something directed by god yeah. now the the entirety of the universe is directed by god and and we we clearly we under we understand that and everything has its has its purpose and uh, perhaps we just don't see the purpose of these things at this point and we really don't know um, what the what the future is going to hold i guess and it's a, it's going to be a, a strange new realm as these these uh, systems start to become more and more complex and as you say you know we we barely understand our own brains and you know, we're yeah. we're barely scratching the surface of of the potential of this sort of technology so um let let's have this discussion 20 years from now perhaps with a with a <laughs> perhaps with a robot co-host as well I mean. <laughs> yeah maybe maybe lambda will learn how to do <laughs> radio <laughs> disc jockeying and we can uh, we can sit back and listen <laughs> i look look forward to it. i look forward to it. now uh something that uh, certainly has got me excited I, mean, I, th- I think has got you excited Absolutely. as well the, the james webb space telescope i mean just absolutely extraordinary and this is a, 
Uh, and some people will say, what a complete waste of money. This project cost NASA billions and billions of dollars, was incredibly delayed. It was delayed by something like 10 years. Um, and they, but, but from an engineering perspective, and from a computing perspective and from a science perspective, this is absolutely extraordinary. So NASA developed a uh, telescope that they shot into space. So the Hubble telescope was went around the Earth. And the idea of putting it in orbit around the Earth was to escape from the atmosphere. So interference from the atmosphere wouldn't affect it. We thought we're going to go one further than that and make sure that no radiation from the Earth can cause a problem or from the sun can cause a problem to our space telescope. So let's shoot it out so that it's in orbit around the sun, but at such a point where it is also um, as distant as possible from the earth as we can get it uh, and make a massive shield so that it doesn't get any uh, radiation from the sun and then point it out into the deepest, darkest aspects of space. And it's just absolutely extraordinary. And some of the first images that have come out, and these are the very first images that have come from the James Webb Space Telescope as it's been deployed. The the thing that's come out, uh, uh, and it's said again and again, is if you take a grain of rice, you hold that grain of rice at arm's length up and hold it up to the sky, the, the area that that grain of rice would, would cover is the area of the first image. And that image contains millions and millions of galaxies unbelievable okay. we, yeah the, i think the i the i i think it, it, if you even sit back for a moment and think about it the idea that we can't even get to anywhere near our solar system let alone the the billions of solar systems that exist just in our galaxy and then when you look up and a grain of sand's worth of sky real estate gives you billions of galaxies I mean, you know, that is just, I mean, I think it, it for, for me, the, what it does is it brings you very much down to earth and makes you realize that actually we are, what arrogance to think that we understand what's going on in our universe. <laughs> what a arrogance to think that we can understand, we can say with any definitive, the, you know, confidence that there is a God or there isn't one or that, you know, just the majesty of it is beyond I think we we I think the the value of the James Webb telescope for me is a very moral one mm. for people it's, it is scientific as an aerospace engineer you know I'm in awe of the technology but as a human being I think the ramifications are that it should humble all of us mm. to know that our lives the small things that we get upset about are really meaningless when you look at how fast the universe we are in I think a speck of dust uh, it, you know, it, it would be a billion times bigger than what we are compared to when you just look at the majesty. Yeah. Of, and we we've not even understood. We, we're seeing structures we don't understand. Mm. We're seeing entire systems of stars that are telling us completely different things. We're, we're, we're understanding things like the fact that most of what we see in the universe is unseeable, you mm. know, belief. And interestingly, Islam says, you know, one of the our pillars is belief in the unseen. Mm. And physics points to the fact that there's a lot of unseen in the world. Most of the matter and energy in the universe is dark, i.e. Mm. it's unseen, which mm. is exactly as Islam tells you. So for me, it's it's faith-inspiring more than anything else to see 
the James Webb telescope and I hope we you know I, science for me for the sake of pursuit of human knowledge and exploration I think is one of the a great way to spend and appreciating that there's people out there who don't have enough to eat and we should absolutely work on that but sometimes when you're reaching for the stars you 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 get somewhere and you you get better perspectives and I think that's something that it, if that's what it gives us then I think that's better for everyone as as a human race we we get better perspectives on what is important and what isn't and I guess that's that striving to be better goes to the heart of absolutely everything that we do whether whether it is the principle of of social justice is ensuring that everyone has enough to eat or, or whether it is our the uh, deepening our understanding of the very universe in which we live uh, just thinking about this from a technological perspective uh, I mean, I mean the, what what you said very much re- reflect on what you've said there in terms of the the very vastness of uh, the universe and, and and a deeper understanding of of how insignificant how absolutely humbled we should be in in looking at these images the the engineering behind this though is something absolutely amazing when i when i read some of the things about everything from from the way in which the the system had been designed to be safe as it left earth orbit and then slowly unfurl itself after it had reached the point at which it was it was going to remain in orbit through to the way in which it protects itself from the sun's radiation through to the computing power contained within it which in in some senses is is pretty measly i mean my my phone has more storage space than the james webb space telescope but that storage is designed to withstand um the radiation in space yeah. i mean it's just it's just incredible Can you just just talk us through some of the some of the marvels in in that engineering for a minute yeah i mean i think when you're when you're talking about um i mean the whole field of aerospace engineering is really understanding what you can do at the limits in extreme environments and extreme settings. And if you think about, you know, if you if, you're, if you go into space, you're not just dealing with extreme temperatures, extreme heat when the sun is in your way to extreme cold when it's not. Um, so that the, one of the big challenges um, in designing systems is around temperature shock because everything works around temperatures. So the shock you get in space of temperatures is is unbelievably difficult to manage. On top of that, radiation, which on the one hand you're trying to measure, you're using infrared, you're looking at visible light, you're looking across the energy spectrum, but at the same time you're trying to block it out at the same time. What that does to systems is, you know, without getting too technical, is it it it, it essentially scrambles everything. It makes a very and it makes a very short living. But they've made it so that it will last for years and decades, you know. And and you know that what you that the amazing thing is people don't realize is that when you solve extreme problems, when you take the extreme environment away, but you you keep the lessons learned, you actually take engineering and problem solving forward here on Earth. And a lot of the things that we take for granted were developed for extreme environments. Simple things like Velcro, which we all use. I mean, these things were developed for space. Um, but material science uh, develops. Our electronics ability to develop electronics develops. So these kind of projects which serve humanity in our quest for being better actually helps us here on Earth. And I think that, to me, is the business case for doing these things because the the precision, that level of precision that you need... You know, if you, if you look at something like the, the James Webb Telescope, 
you know, the slightest nick or dent or anything in the mirror, the slightest imperfection means your the thing is gone. You spent billions of dollars, slightest imperfection. You could get that imperfection just from its movement, just from, you know, it could be slightly misaligned or uncalib become uncalibrated, but they managed to get it to work. Mm. And if you remember with Hubble, it didn't work for a long time. And, yeah. and, and it was a huge disappointment because we spent all this money and then there was a lot of problems with the mirrors and, and how they were working and people went up to actually try and fix it, which is amazing. I mean, again, amazing to think that we put something in space. It doesn't work. We go up and fix it. And now we decided, well, that was great. Now let's do the next one. For me, space exploration is, you know, I think the ultimate value to humanity of space exploration could be that we start to think as a species, because when we, we think of finite resources, we think of because the world is finite. But actually, space has, for our intents and purposes, is, has infinite resources. And if we as a, as, a, as a human species can figure out a way to harness that, there's an infinite amount of energy in the universe. We could never use it all up. There's an infinite amount of resource. Whatever resource, whatever we want to build, the materials are out there in quantity, more quantity than we could ever imagine. And if that takes us to become a civilization that says, actually, you know what, well, do we need more palladium for something? We want to build something new all out of, well, there's an asteroid just down there that's got more than we'll ever need in, for the next billion years. Let's get it. If we can figure that out, we become a race that isn't, there's no longer worried about. We can feed everyone. There's enough energy for everyone. There's enough food for everyone. And there's enough for everyone to develop into the kind of person they want to be. And I think those kind of things can eventually take us out of the pettiness of the politics and the, the cruelty and you know, when we look above and we look bigger, you know, the greed, there's so much in the universe that human greed can be, can be, can even be quenched by that. I would, you know, I would imagine. I think that's the real benefit of space for us. It's an infinite amount of resource and energy. Let's, let's go take it. <laughs> Use I mean, it for good. Use it for good. Absolutely. And, and I guess I mean, this, this idea of the benefits that engineering and science in general give us more broadly in terms of a, a better understanding of the universe, but also a better understanding of how we can make better use of the resources, those God-given resources. Yeah, that is that is perhaps one of the one of the the most fundamental aspects of of this and of of the of that of, of this piece of work, as it were. This this. Um, uh, majestic piece of work that is science. Yep. Um, a, a deep, a deeper understanding of that, and 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 being and being better of it at it. And and as you said, ultimately, and although this also requires um, a, a moral stake in in the argument as well. Ultimately, to say you know we 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 can stop being unequal. Yeah, we can stop um, uh, making it so that the world is is um, unfair to certain individuals that, that people don't get enough to eat you know there needs to be a certain um, uh, a certain understanding that uh, people uh, should should be allowed to fulfill their ultimately their their full potential uh, and that the constraints of, of the the physical shouldn't stand in the way of that now, of course some people are going to argue that, that was it's never the case that it's the constraints 
just the constraints. Yeah. There there needs to be a spiritual aspect to this. There needs to be a moral aspect to this. And that is perhaps a, a wider debate. Um, but we're coming up to the end of the first hour of the program. It's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Amir. We're going to take a short break now uh, and have a narration from the book, Muhammad, the Messenger of God. Join us after that and after the news. This is the seventh part in a serialization of the book, Muhammad, Messenger of God, by Sajda Hamid. Battle of Uhud The Quraysh could not easily forget the defeat at the Battle of Badr. It was like a black spot on their honour. They wanted to avenge their defeat so that they could hold up their heads again in front of the other tribes of Arabia. In 625 AD, under the command of Abu Sufyan, they raised an army of 3,000 soldiers, 700 of them with coats of mail. They had 3,000 camels and 200 horses. When they reached Medina, they stopped in the north, near Mount Uhud. When the news reached Medina that a Meccan army was on the way for the second time, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, asked the opinion of the Muslims who then numbered 1,500 in Medina. He also told them about one of his dreams, that staying inside Medina would be beneficial for the Muslims. Abdullah bin Ubay supported the idea, but the younger Muslims, who wanted to go out of Medina and face the enemy, urged others to agree with them. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, accepted their popular proposal. Immediately an army of 1,000 soldiers was raised and the Muslims set off for Uhud. On the way, Abdullah bin Ubay deserted the Muslims with his 300 companions and returned to Medina. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was therefore left with 700 Muslims who faced an army of 3,000 infidels. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, organized his army behind Mount Uhud. The Meccans could not attack from the rear except through a small open passage. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, chose fifty of his archers and advised them to stay at this pass no matter what happened. Meanwhile, the ladies who had accompanied the Meccan army started singing war songs to incite the feelings of the Quraysh. Abu Sufyan took command of his army. In the beginning, a brave pagan fighter called Talha came forward to challenge the Muslims. Ali stepped forward and killed him. Then Talha's brother came forward to take his brother's revenge, but Hamza, the Holy Prophet's uncle, finished him off. General fighting started. Hamza, Ali, Zubair and Abu Dujana created confusion in the lines of the Quraysh. They soon started running and the Muslims began to collect the spoils of war. Some of the fifty archers who had been placed on the passage of Uhud left their place also and came down to share in the spoils of war against the advice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Khalid bin Walid, who was a brave Quraysh general, saw the open way. He took advantage of this mistake and attacked the few Muslims who had remained behind and finished them off. He began to attack the Muslims from the rear where they had no protection. This confused the Muslims because they were not ready for another attack. In this confusion, even the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, became injured and fell down from his horse. The Quraysh spread the false rumour that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had been killed. This news made the Muslims very sad. Some stopped fighting altogether. The rest continued to fight half-heartedly. 
Vahshi, a Negro slave who had been promised his freedom by Abu Sufyan's wife if he killed Hamza, threw a spear at Hamza, the Holy Prophet's uncle, and a brave Muslim warrior, and killed him. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, retired with his few followers to one of the cliffs of Uhud and prayed to God, O my Lord, forgive my nation, for they know not what they are doing. Of the seven hundred, seventy Muslims died defending their faith, and twenty-three enemy warriors were killed in this battle. The infidels cut the limbs off the dead bodies of the Muslims. They returned to Mecca with many injured because they were too tired to challenge the Muslims and enter Medina again. A Western writer, Ruth Warren, writes, How bad a defeat was Uhud? Certainly the Muslims had not won, but neither the Meccans achieved a decided victory. They had not destroyed Muhammad, nor Medina, nor had they made good their threat to make the Muslims pay thrice over for Meccan deaths at Badr. Muhammad had not won a victory, but he had at least held his own. Hypocrites, people who inwardly believe in something but pretend and say something else, like Abdullah bin Ubay and the Jews of Medina, started making fun of the Muslims. The Muslims had learned that they must obey the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. After all, defeat at Uhud could have been avoided had they obeyed the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, by defending Medina without leaving it, or by sticking to their post at the passage as he had ordered. When life returned to normal, God revealed the commandment that drinking and gambling were forbidden. When this was announced, the streets of Medina flowed with liquor as the people destroyed their stores of wine. The Arabs were accustomed to drinking wine five times a day. When the announcement was made that drinking wine had been forbidden, a wine party was being held in one of the houses. One of them tried to find out whether this announcement was correct. Another lifted up his staff and broke all the vessels containing wine before this could be found out. Such was their love for the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and what he said, they obeyed first and questioned afterwards. Some time later, there was a famine in Mecca. In spite of the hostilities, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, sent help to the poor people of Mecca. Battle of the Trench or Ditch In the fifth year after migration, the people of Mecca started a dangerous propaganda against the Muslims among all the tribes of Arabia. The Jewish tribe, Beni Nadir, helped them in their vicious plans. As a result, all the tribes of Arabia turned against the Muslims. The people of Najd, the Sulaym, Ghatafan and several other tribes joined with the people of Mecca. An army of between ten to thirty thousand was raised and they set off happily from Mecca to destroy Medina. When the news reached Medina, Salman Farsi, a companion of the Holy Prophet from Persia, suggested to the Messenger of God that they should dig a long trench around the unprotected part of Medina. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, accepted his proposal, and the Muslims started to dig a long ditch around the town. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, worked hard along with his followers to dig this long trench. Once during the digging, the Muslims came across a solid rock which could not be moved by any of them. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was informed. He took the axe in his own hands and struck the rock very hard. 
Sparks flew off the rock, and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, declared, God is great, I have been given the keys of Syria. Then he struck the rock a second time and announced, God is great, I have been blessed with the keys of Persia. Then he struck the axe a third time, uprooting the rock from its place, and told his followers, God is great, now I have been presented with the keys of Yemen. These visions cheered the tired and hungry Muslims. Later on, the keys of the empires of Iran, Persia and Yemen were presented to the Muslims when they conquered these countries. When the trench was complete, an army of 3,000 Muslims was appointed to guard the ditch. Inside the city, women and children were in great danger from the Jewish tribe Bani Qureda's attack. In short, the Muslims were faced with a difficult situation. They were few in number when compared to the army of the Quraysh. They had a rebellious enemy sitting inside Medina. They were short of arms and they were facing a dangerous enemy who was bent on finishing the new religion. Soon, the Meccan army reached Medina and camped on the other side of the ditch. They found themselves confused by the new tactics of the Muslims who appeared to be so alert. They could not cross the ditch and enter Medina. Once Amr bin Abdud, who was considered sufficient for 1,000 soldiers, challenged the Muslims to single combat, Ali, armed with the Holy Prophet's sword, accepted the challenge and killed Abdud immediately. But this small victory did not have any effect. At the end of three weeks, the Muslims were besieged, hungry, cold and totally exhausted. The Holy Quran states, Call to mind when the enemy came upon you from above you and from below you, and your eyes became distorted and your heart rose up to your throats. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, prayed to Almighty God. Allah put the enemy to flight. Help us and remove them as you always help the helpless and answer the call of those in trouble. God answered the call of his messenger. The wind started blowing. It changed into a heavy storm. The tents of the Quraysh were blown apart and their fires were put out. They became terrified and ran away from the battlefield. The Holy Prophet and his companions thanked God for his mercy. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 24th of July, 2022. My name is Hamad Khan and you are listening live to Weekend World. And I have in the studio Amir Malik. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Amir, thank you for joining us again after the news. Uh, really interesting first hour of discussion on uh, things that have been happening. We were talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and, and, and frankly, really geeking out on that but uh but of course the the one of the tremendous I mean, we talked about this from an engineering perspective um but but uh, frankly one of the one of the things that that leads to this is all of is all of the science and the science is driven by um systems that are that allow that sort of science to to um develop um, and we can talk about capitalist systems. We can talk about the fact that China, for instance, as a, as a burgeoning scientific power now, uh, has its own way of doing things, um, and, and this could be the basis for a, for a big debate. Um, uh, but we're not going to get into that. But what we are going to do is we are going to have uh, Mahmoud Ahmed on the line. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. Thank you for joining us on Weekend World. Assalamu alaikum. It's a pleasure to be back. 
Uh, Mahmoud is, of course, our American correspondent. I mean, uh, Swedish American correspondent. I don't. I'm uh, Mahmoud. I never know quite how to <laughs> to introduce you. But but anyway, you're over there in the in the states. You're settled there. You you have a unique perspective that you bring us here on Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. So thank you for joining us uh, this morning. And um, I know it's very early in the morning for you. There's so always appreci- appreciative. Uh, of the fact that you uh, drag yourself out of bed to come and talk to us. But we are fascinated. We really want to know what's going on over there in the States because from our lens, from our perspective, it is fascinating. It's, it's things, things continue in, a, in, a, in an odd way with Trump. We thought Trump was gone, but he's still there. And uh, January 6th uh, is, is uh, all, the, all that anyone can talk about at the, at the moment and the real story of January 6th and there has been this hearing, the congressional hearing, and it's been watching videos, and it's been watching um, Donald Trump sitting in the White House as the January 6th events were unfolding, um, and as the the mob was attacking the Capitol building, and apparently doing nothing about it. Um, and this is this is. And, and I guess for those on the on the left of American politics, they they're going, look at this horrible, but it doesn't surprise us. And those on the right of of American politics are uh, are saying, well, you know, he, he's still our president, and um, it doesn't make any difference to us. And and this is this is just the left um, doing what they do, um, and it doesn't really mean anything. Do you think it's really going to shift? anything in American politics? Is is there some middle ground of of wavering voter who's going to go? Oh, that's really bad. I, I'm not going to vote for that Trump next time. Trump 2024. Yeah, so that that that's the um, you know the the, the 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 big question following these hearings. Um, I will say, the hearings were crafted in a way, you know, that is designed to move the needle because uh, the 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 issue in American politics, as I think folks are well aware, for the last several years has been an increasing tribalization where people seemingly are going to vote for the candidate of their party no matter what revelation you know is is, is made about that person no matter mm. what indictment of their character is apparent but what the January 6th hearing has done is it's put people of Mr. Trump's own party front and center and not just that but people who in fact had chosen to work for him had chosen to work on his campaign in his white Mm. house and were committed servants of his administration all the way up until that day and so the some of the most powerful testimony has been from people who were in the white house that day who were sort of you know of the trump brand so to speak Mm. but then saw what he did and what he failed to do that day uh you know in spite of you know, pleading and requests by various people around him, um, you know, who were unseeing the events that were unfolding and were, uh, uh, you know, almost begging him to intervene. And, and, and he declined to do so. And instead, at one point, you know, fanned um, the flames even further. Uh, and those are the people who have been given the most prominent billing in, in prime time even, uh, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, and so I think that, that the, the intent is, to you know, really move the voters who otherwise would be potentially motivated to vote for Trump, were he to run again, 
to say, this is not the Democrats talking. This is not the left speaking. This is, you know, the very um, group of people who had chosen to serve under Mr. Trump, who were committed to him, who have now been disillusioned following what happened on January 6th. He is too much of a liability. You know, don't 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 do this again. That's that's I think the the, the intent, the, the the pitch that's being made. But isn't Mahmoud? Isn't it the case that the the narrative or the the comeback from the the Republican right is that actually that the idea of Trumpism was very a very positive one for society. We just need a different host, as in the movement is strong. So it could be a it could be a, a Ron DeSantis coming through. Or it could be someone equally, if not more extreme, that comes through. And, and also, do you not think that if you look at the polarization of the American left and the right, and you look at how the left and right wing media is dealing with it, it almost feels like whatever the left is saying is being insulated on the right and vice versa. It's almost like they're talking across each other now. I mean, if you look at even take a data point like the fact that Fox and other right wing channels, you know, they're they're, they're hardly talking about the, the January 6th. They're in fact ignoring it and putting other programs on um, so that their listeners aren't even being exposed to it necessarily. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've had this dissonance where Fox has refused essentially to carry those hearings. You know, they may report on them briefly here or there, but they're prime time opinion show hosts certainly are not carrying them during their programming. Um, you know, you, 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 you've had the House um, Republicans, you know, uh, um, attempt to denigrate the hearings as partisan propaganda, um, even though they were put in an awkward position this past week because one of the most prominent witnesses who was testifying, uh, they, um, you know, sort of defamed her only to realize within minutes that she was, in fact, somebody who was actively working for them um, oh. currently. And then they had to delete that tweet because it just wasn't a good look. They were attacking one of their own. Um, but, uh, but, but to your broader point about Trump versus Trumpism, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that, in fact, for Democrats, this may be one of the, 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 the double-edged sword sort of aspects of this exercise is that by focusing on Trump himself exclusively as the, uh, you know, the, the engine of, of evil, so to speak, on that day, and almost, you know, by extension, exonerating nearly everyone else around him, mm. um, I think that they are creating an opening for people like Ron DeSantis or others, you know, and frankly, even the vice president, the former vice president, Mike Pence, who, who in some ways is, 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 is uh, coming across as a bit of a, a hero, right, on, mm. on, on this day, to run in 2024, in many ways, embrace the so-called accomplishments of mm. the Trump administration and its ideology, um, but distancing themselves from the candidate and being able to do so, you know, and, and, and perhaps being given a permission structure to do so by the way that these hearings are being conducted. Mm. So I think that that's the, that's the risk that's being run. But I think mm. that Democrats probably are aware of that. Um, but they see Mr. 
Mr. Trump himself as a clear and present danger to the country, um, you know, that, that, that justifies maybe even, you know, in some ways uh, letting Trumpism, uh, you know, get a pass, mm. right? Because they're so concerned about himself getting back in, in, in power. But do you, do you think that, um, you know, we, with the midterms coming up, do you think there's a fear that the Democrats have pushed some of the those that were potential folks in the middle towards uh, the right? When you see things like, if you saw the, the hearings on the Supreme Court, the latest nominee, I mean, there were simple things that I think is not a left issue or a right issue. Well, it's more of a centrist issue where the 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 the, the nominee wouldn't even be brave enough to define what a woman is when we're talking about women's rights and things like you know roe v wade etc and she was so scared of the left and what it meant in terms of the things you can and cannot say that it seems that 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 a lot of you know in, in america you've got a very silent center you know you've got very loud uh left and right extremes but that center is very, very silent. But it seems that those who are at the center are, are being pushed more towards the right than the left. They're, they're not being pulled towards the left. They're almost being shouted at to say, you must adhere to certain ideologies if you are on our side. And I think that for me, do you see that as a danger to the left, especially with the, with the midterms coming up? I, I, I think politically it, it definitely is a danger. I mean, the environment, for the midterms is one in which you always have the, the, the party of the of the current incumbent White House um, in a challenging position. Uh, his history suggests that you know more often than not that party loses seats. It's rare that it doesn't. Hmm. And then you have a second dimension of you know the economic um, news that's unfolding in the United States around you know which is I think not really all that dissimilar from what's happening in the, in the rest of the world, for that matter. It's, it has a, it's a very complex beast connected to the, the pandemic and, and, and some of the uh, supply chain issues that have fallen out from that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an enormous disruption, um, but it has meant in the United States for the first time in literally decades uh, something, something that you know, is starting to resemble uh, um, hyperinflation by American standards. Mm. Uh, that we haven't seen in, 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 I would say, 40 years at this point. Mm. Um, and so that's obviously putting an enormous damper on people's mood and the all the right right track, wrong track, tra- track type polling that is done for the first time in a long time is now looking dismal um, for the country. And then obviously then, you know, on top of all that, you have what you're describing, which is the, the cultural issues um, that have come to the fore where I think that people associated with the left and the Democratic Party are aligning themselves to a, you know, a, a, a set of understandings around key cultural issues such as, such as gender that are uh, not, I would say, tethered mm. to what you would say is the, is the center of the body politic, but instead embracing uh, a set of propositions that, you know, perhaps are popular in academia, 
uh, you know, uh, but 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 cer- certainly don't don't pull well, uh, and 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 don't appear to have been broadly embraced by the population. And so I think that and and, and Republicans are capitalizing on that by uh, you know po- pointing that out and by by painting various scenarios in which they think that these types of principles will 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 erode um, values that a lot of people at the center of society um, you know think are important. Um, and I, I, I think that in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade, Democrats have perhaps a, you know, a, a little bit of a hope that that narrative will turn in their favor um, because of the, the implications of, 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 of Roe no longer being the law of the land yeah. and the, you know, the, the jeopardy that that puts uh, um, women in, uh, but it's too soon to tell whether or not that's going to be the case. I, I guess Mahmoud, one of the one of the challenges in in all of this with American politics is the fact that you do get these extreme rallying points, um, whether it's on the right or on the left. And and just going back to a question that Amir raised earlier, which was a, around this question of Trump versus Trumpism, looking at at any Republican candidate in the future do you do you think that there is any space for them they're they're clearly still going to have to follow the same agenda the same talking points the same rallying points as trump did but not have the advantage that trump did which was this cult of personality which meant that under the cover of um the the sorts of things that he could that he would do he could he could get away with a lot because people were just incredulous they just it's almost like they were in shock they just stood and watched it because it was so unbelievable that their brains just couldn't get around the idea that this is this had actually happened um and do do you think that any future republican candidate um is going to be able to to pull off the same stunt as trump did um, with, without having the same sort of magnetism for uh, the voter base on the right-hand side or, or without doing the same sorts of things which, which Trump did, which frankly on, only uh, Trump was uh, or is able to, to pull off? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. I, I would maybe um, challenge a, a, a little bit the... the, the framing of this as an American problem. I think that what you're seeing to, to, to maybe step back a bit is, is something that's going on around, around the world. Um, it, you know, a, a period of, of great um, instability, uh, geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, uh, un, un, uncertainty, uh, and a lot of different flavors of these strong men um, coming to the fore uh, in different countries, um, and I, I think Trump is a, is a is a symptom of that. Obviously, a very potent symptom of that. One that all we've, we've all had to confront over the last several years. Um, and so, I guess what what I'm getting at is that whether someone else comes along, whether it's DeSantis or or you know, frankly, there are some other quite colorful figures in, in the Republican Party for that matter as well. And whether or not they're they're successful in um, you know wrapping the body politic around their finger and, and being able to uh, you know c- carry out some relatively extreme ideas, 
I think will depend at least to a significant degree on the broader um, you know, situation in the world and in the United States and how um, you know, unstable things are and whether or not people feel uh, that their uh, you know, existence is, 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 is kind of manageable and they understand what's up and down and whether or not you know, they, they think the world is going in the right direction. Where, where I think that people, people of this brand have the ability to carry people with them, you know, with varying levels of charisma, is, 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 it's really a function of whether or not people think the status quo is something that they find acceptable or positive. And if they don't, if they, for one reason or another, and this was Trump's, I think, biggest accomplishment, so to speak, is that he convinced all these people that, you know, things were going to get really worse for them, um, you know, because of the increasing number of minorities or immigrants or, you know, other factors that he pointed to, you know, it, 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 it then scares them and gives them perhaps um, a level of, uh, you know, motivation that, hey, let's bring somebody else in who will, who will alter the status quo even if it's extreme, because I think that's somehow going to benefit me or the people who I associate with. And so I think the challenge for people who don't appreciate Trumpism, people who, 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 who would prefer to have a, a, a different set of ideological um, you know, pro, pro, proclivities prevail, uh, is, is really to understand the anxiety that is pervading um, you know, the, the population. And unfortunately, right now, I think that there are very good reasons for people to be anxious. It's no longer, you know, somebody who is very cleverly riling up the masses, even though things are going along relatively well. But instead, you know, there are clear and present dangers to the economy and to the culture and to the geopolitical landscape. And I think that there are, the Democratic Party, or whoever it is that wants to challenge Trumpism, um, you know, and, and that set of assumptions has to come up with a compelling counter narrative uh, and cannot, I think, count on um, just the absence of charisma in the next guy. Because I think that while that was a factor in Trump's success, ultimately it's part of a broader structural calculus, uh, you know, whether or not those same kinds of ideological currents, you know, will carry the day or not. And you need a compelling counter narrative and a compelling plan um, in order to convince people um, to move towards something different and and certainly with um president joe biden he's a charisma isn't something that you would necessarily associate with him when when seeing him on the i mean perhaps a perhaps a return to to normality perhaps a return to a a quieter sort of politics but at the same time not something that it that is as inspiring uh perhaps uh, to I mean, whatever your uh, particular uh, political um, uh, ideology might be, but not not someone who's particularly inspiring in that respect. Um, just in the last few minutes, Mahmoud, if we can bring it round to to uh, President Biden and and just talk about some of the challenges that he has domestically, but but also um, to 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 gently point the finger as well. Um, I guess coming out of the pandemic. President Biden had made a promise that he would make things uh, better from an economic perspective for the American people. 
Uh, and he saw the way uh, the way in which he was going to do that was by an injection. We've talked about this on the program, injection, a massive injection of, of cash into the American economy. And that happened at various levels, both, both in terms of individuals getting money to spend as they saw fit, but also in terms of uh, industries um, uh, and, and economic institutions getting getting large amounts of money as well. And who knew that if you s- inject massive amounts of cash into the economy, you might end up with inflation? I, I mean, apart from the economists who kept saying that, that this was going to happen. I mean, do, do you think that the that uh, uh, people in, a, in the United States are, are blaming him for what's happened? Or, or have they just said, well, this was inevitable, this was going to happen, this was all... Um, because of because of COVID and and we really couldn't escape this when there was a, a bounce back then this was going to happen and we just need to get back onto an even keel. Do, how much of an understanding do you think the average person has of of what is happening at the moment economically and the dangers that exist? Certainly, we, we're having the same debate here in the in the UK as well. I I, I think the problem that the Biden administration. Um, and the Federal Reserve, which to some extent is outside the control of the Biden administration, but controls monetary policy in the United States uh, it, to a degree that maybe is even greater than than, than in most other countries by design, an, an independent um, um, agency of the government over which the executive exercises almost no control beyond just being able to remove whoever is currently in charge of that agency. Um, the, the problem that they collectively created, I think, for themselves is a, uh, to, 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 to the point you just made, um, a, a profound failure to manage expectations. Um, you're correct that economists had been warning, probably beginning in early 2021, um, of, of this uh, impending um, in, in inflation you know, caution the Federal Reserve to stop injecting liquidity into the markets and so forth. And yet the Federal Reserve, even looking at the inflation numbers, seeing them coming, you know, um, adopted the posture that they believed that inflation was a transient problem. And the administration, you know, and, and, and you know, its economic advisors and the president himself adopted that same narrative. And so, uh, you know, in in a world where there had been perhaps a different set of communication strategies and talking points where people were told to expect this as a necessary course correction following um, the injection of money into the economy without which the economy may have completely collapsed, right? And, and in some ways, I think that there was an opportunity to say, you know, we had to do something to address the crisis but there will be a price to pay and we should all buckle up for that price. And instead, you know, the message was there's nothing to see here. Um, inflation is, is under control and we'll soon be back to smooth sailing. And unfortunately that is not what happened. Um, and in fact, inflation got worse and worse and the federal reserve very abruptly reversed course uh, and, and went from being, an institution that was seen as 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 nearly infallible uh, to 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 really being in the crosshairs of a lot of people who are deeply unhappy mm. with the way that it has conducted itself. So, um, and so I think that has been the president's challenge uh, and the administration's challenge. So let's make it interesting, Mahmoud. Um, m- midterm elections, 
what where do you see things going and what happens to biden if he becomes a lame duck well a very very aging lame duck who may also need <laughs> i you know it's it's uh it's it's a little bit worrisome i mean i i if the if the economy falls into a technical recession, which is now, I think, to, for, for those of your listeners who may not know what that means in the United States, two consecutive quarters of negative growth would, would, would constitute a technical recession. Um, I think that's, that's from, a, from a, just an optics standpoint and a very important um, you know, consideration. Um, and there's, there's, there's a serious risk that we may be heading in that direction. Now, the price is falling at the pump, which which has been happening over the last several weeks, and uh, you know is, is is a positive sign. But I think the broader economic outlook remains quite negative. Mm. Um, I think that that will likely mean uh, that the midterms will go the Republicans' way in a in a, in a in a serious manner, which will mean that Biden becomes a lame duck. And I think that you know the country the country is in need of a lot of soul searching um you know a lot of action I, I i think everyone agrees is required um to deal with systemic problems you know uh it, you know on a, on a on a variety of fronts because america is seen as as as, as not being ready mm. for the challenges ahead and so i i, I think that not, not only will it be bad politically for the democrats but i think virtually everyone who's thinking about this issue just from uh, uh, you know, wh where's the country going, and 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 are, are we doing what needs to be done? Uh, is is worried that you know it, it could it could create a, essentially a, a two year period where very very little of substance um, gets gets done. Mm. Dangerous. Um, Mahmoud, thank you so much for uh, for that insight into what's happening in American uh, politics. I mean, ho hopefully we'll get to speak to you again. Uh, soon as well um, uh, here on Weekend World. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Mahmoud. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. That was uh, Mahmoud Emadar, American correspondent, uh, talking in detail about uh, uh, aspects of uh, uh, Amer American politics. But of course, all of these things affect us here in the UK as well. And we're coming up to the end of the live segment of, of the second hour of the program. Now, in, in the last hour, half hour of the program, uh, we will have our colleagues from Rational Religion uh, talking on a, on a, a number of different subjects. Uh, um, I'm really good to have you here on the program. I'm sure you'll you'll want to come back. Hopefully, we'll we'll be able to get you back in the studio or on the phone uh, in the near future. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Uh, if you enjoyed today's program, then do tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, you can also go on our website voiceofislam.co.uk to find out more about Voice of Islam. Uh, you can also listen again to previous episodes of Weekend World and just uh, go to SoundCloud and search for Voice of Islam and then Weekend World. And you can listen to the entire back catalogue, five years worth of programmes um, here on uh, Voice of Islam. Uh, so let's listen to our colleagues at Rational Religion uh, now. And thank you very much for listening. Okay, so there's a popular TikTok video from uh, Cosmic Skeptic, who's a, uh, a high-profile YouTube uh, atheist. Uh, let's take a look at this argument that he gives in a speech. 
The populace of Saudi Arabia is 95% Muslim and therefore 95% theistic, whereas the populace of Thailand is 95% Buddhist and therefore, at best, 5% theistic. How likely you are to be a theist, in other words, is intimately tied to the place in which you happen to be born. What can better explain this geographical spread? Theism or atheism? Well, let's consider our two competing hypotheses. Could it be that God does exist, but that the Thai are simply naturally 20 times more likely to be resistant to belief in God than, say, the Saudis? Are they just naturally 20 times more stubborn or something? This seems implausible. This doesn't seem to be their fault. Okay, so maybe then it's not their fault, and God just has some reason to hide his face disproportionately more from the Thai than from Saudis, or indeed from those born here in Massachusetts, which, according to one statistic, is 75% theistic. If theism is true, it seems to me that God has a lot to answer for here. Is it not troubling, as a Christian, that your place of birth is a reliable statistical indicator of how likely you are to be saved? I'll say that again. Your place of birth, which is entirely arbitrary, is a reliable indicator of how likely you are on Christianity to be saved. You're significantly more likely to be a theist if you're born in Rwanda than if you're born in Thailand. Can this situation really obtain under the supervision of a god who wants to come to know us and makes his existence equally accessible to all? The chances seem infinitely small. Now consider naturalism or atheism. Religion varying by region is exactly what we would expect if it is a man-made cultural phenomenon and nothing like what we should expect if there is, in fact, one true God who loves all equally. Again, I think atheism provides a much stronger account of this fact of our world. Okay, so let me break down the argument that he gives um, and the structure that he gives. Uh, there's a lot that he worked into there, which is going to take some unraveling. Uh, but it's quite fun when you do unravel it. So <laughs> he says, he basically, this is the kind of claimed fact set. The claimed fact set is basically this. This area has a high belief in God because it has a theistic religion. This other area, let's say area X, area Y has a low belief in God because it has, he claims, an atheistic religion. And how do you explain this, this, uh, this fact set? And he says, well, you either have atheism or theism and implies that they have two completely different sets of possible explanations there. And he says, well, if you believe in God, there's only two ways you can explain for the fact that you have geographical differences in belief in God, according to religion. The one is that basically um, some people have like inherent lower receptivity to God, right? So it's the fault of the people, there's nothing wrong with the people, and God's designed them that way. Uh, but that would be kind of mean. And the other is that um, God literally, they, people have equal receptivity, but God hides himself. But that's also doesn't really, you know, how does that work? That doesn't go in line with an all-loving God. So those are the two explanations that he gives of theism. That's the only way apparently theism can explain for the fact that different places have different levels of belief in God because of different religions. And then he says, well, you know, we can't accept those. We have to therefore accept atheism. And atheism can perfectly explain well, the naturalistic this. explanation. Naturalism, naturalism, atheism. He's mm. honest enough to, to equate those two. Um, atheism can explain it because... Religion under atheism is a man-made um, belief system and therefore he asserts you would expect uh, cultural variation, okay? So that's the kind of structure of, of the argument. Um, so is there anything that jumps out of you before we kind of break that down and or, or you know, refute that? Is there anything that jumps out of you that you wanted to, to mention first? On you. So 
in in some cases he's correct, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe we can talk about where he's right. So there is a geographical distribution in religion. Mm-hmm. So fine, there's way more Muslims in Saudi Arabia than there are in Thailand. Um, so there is that spread. And he's also right when he talks about Christianity and he talks about the injustice of it because he says it's not fair that those who are born Christian or those who are Christian in a particular area get saved, but then those who are not Christian because they live in Saudi Arabia and have no opportunity to become Christian Hmm. will be condemned Hmm. um, just because of where they lived and how they were brought up. And I agree with him. Like, that's not fair. If God were to punish people just because of the geographical area they were and so which religions they could or could not accept. But I think our perspective as as Muslims is not that. We don't say that um, only people of a specific faith or belief system or only you know particular groups of people can go to, to paradise or be saved. Yeah. It's not so arbitrary. It depends upon our deeds. It depends upon um, our kind of searching for god and it, it's it's a varying factors and god judges us all individually yeah. based on the opportunities that we have yeah mm. so god doesn't treat us unjustly in summary just because of the geographical areas that we live in mm. that's a great point because the whole the whole motivation of that is uh you can only accept this if um god is a tyrant and god's not a tyrant so yeah, yeah. so you straw man god in a big way i think it's mm. a very good that's first really good point, point to begin so is there anything you want to come in or um i think that the I just I just find it striking that he describes Buddhists entirely as atheistic hmm. when they have a belief in reincarnation. They have a belief in I think you put it once very well. You know they they're at least they're worshiping <laughs> the Buddha. Yeah, practically. So often. so yeah. so you know they at least they have a, they pray to it. They seek providence from the Buddha. Hmm. They seek guidance from the Buddha in their lives. Hmm. So call it what you will. Whether it's not the monotheistic concept of God, they have a concept of a God. Hmm. Right, so I think that's one premise is that God is a tyrant, which is false in yeah. our mm. understanding of God. Yeah. The second premise is that these people don't believe in in a deity. Yeah, that's completely false. You know, they don't believe in uh, Yahweh or Allah. Yeah, but they certainly have a deity, and they yeah. ascribe to their deity all of the same attributes, whether they call it God or not. Yeah, uh, of what you know, other people from other religions will believe in. Yeah. So he's he's not comparing an atheistic religion, as it were, to a theistic religion. Yeah. He's comparing two different theistic religions. He's mischaracterizing them. So he's done, that's the second straw man, I think. Uh, I mean, this mm-hmm. is a, that was a point from uh, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community where he, he pointed out, he went through the biblical practice, the, the Buddhist practices, and pointed out how this operates exactly like uh, any other kind of traditional theistic religion. Um, and in fact, in Thailand, they have Theravada <coughs> Buddhists who are some of the more classical Buddhists, and they have very clear references to God and gods in their um, scriptures. Yeah. But many Buddhists will claim that they don't believe in God, but they will ascribe to um, certain, uh, you know, the Buddha or whoever attributes that we would normally ascribe to God. Yeah. But be that as it may, that's kind of that's that's important on a hist- on a uh, just on a factual level. But the argument would still work, like even if he was right, you know. Um, or it would still be it, it could still be a valid argument even if he was right about the the nature of Buddhists in Thailand. Uh, the the issue I have with it is that it's he gives completely false options, right? He claims there's a cultural variation beliefs, which there is. So there's several issues. So the first major issue that I can see, apart from what you guys said, is that theism doesn't just have these two explanations. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. just have the explanation that either people have lower or higher receptivity, 
or God hides himself from certain people. There's a very clear explanation for this in the Quran, say, you know, all over the Quran, yeah. which is that God reveals himself through prophets to people all over the world. This is like a major text, like one of the articles of faith is to believe in all the prophets. I know, yeah. So we believe that all the, all the religions in the world were founded by prophets of God, true prophets of God. Mm. And they came with essentially the same message, worship one God and shun the evil one. And when we look in historical, um, when we look in the historical record, even in Buddhism, Buddha makes very, very explicit, clear mentions of one God. In mm. fact, he came, you know, at least partly to fight against all the the polytheism, of, polytheism Hinduism. of the of the Hindus. Very, very clear mentions of God in the oldest records of Buddhism that we have, which is not actually the scriptures, the um, the stupas, the uh, the um, monuments that we have. Yeah. So in in all major religions, you have good evidence for very similar beliefs, very monotheistic beliefs originally. But what what Islam says happens over time is that people people change their religions. You know, religions come for a certain time, for a certain place, and over time, people corrupt it. They corrupt it according to their own desires, um, and they change things. Maybe they don't want to be as accountable, so their their scribes and their uh, their priests change the nature of the religion in the scripture. And over thousands of years, you get to a large uh, amount of diversity in in religions today. That's a perfectly plausible explanation, at least, that theism provides. Yeah, and it's entirely concordant with the existence of God, yeah. because God has given us free will. Yeah. yeah, he gives the guidance, but he also gives us the capacity to reject the guidance yeah. or to change the guidance according to our own will. So this is a complete, you know, mischaracterization. Except, except when it comes to the Quran, which he promises he will safeguard. Of course, I mean, but that's the whole point of the Quran is that, yeah. is that Islam came as the as the final religion for all people for all times because the others have become like, you know... Interpolated and interpolated. changed. Um, is there anything you want to say on that? Um, yes, insofar as... You know, this is always, always, always the habit is that they seem to always address a Christian audience. Mm. I think they can always, it's because they can always get it get away with it more easily. Yeah. yeah, They can never address it with respect to Muslim beliefs. Yeah. Because Islam cuts them at the knees yeah. when it comes to these arguments. Yeah. Because then they would have to contend with the fact that Islam acknowledges the divine origin of all faiths. Yeah. For example, in this particular case. And so they have to kind of take Christianity and make that into the 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 um the the foil yeah against which they against which they make their argument uh, but they don't actually take on the greater foil yeah. or the harder task which is the islamic view of religion which is much more sophisticated much more universal yeah and uh much more comprehensive yeah i mean the whole you know there's a reason that the atheism grew so much in the west yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> you know yeah, that's the the birthplace of it of modern atheism yeah absolutely uh, I do have another issue as well with the with the kind of way that he's that he's given this argument, which is that he's hidden <coughs> a much bigger problem for atheism, which is that in reality the so-called cultural variation, the different religions across the world, poses a much greater threat to atheism's truth than does theism's truth. Because as I've said, and as and as is commonly acknowledged, we have in every region of the world, every people of the world, very good evidence which exists even now for religions which have incredibly similar common features yeah and these come from peoples who have been completely unrelated to one another in time and space people who could not have communicated their ideas with each other thousands of years ago mm. and yet they have almost identical ideas even in buddhism even in modern buddhism after thousands of years of changing uh you know it believes in karma it believes in uh reincarnation into yeah. another realm i mean this is almost this is basically just a physicalization of the idea of divine merit or displeasure mm. you know changing your condition in the afterlife yeah which you find in the more abrahamic religions mm. um and so many religions have these same features of 
transcendent you know supreme being you're accountable to that and that's and how you act affects how your condition in the next life how can an atheist explain that no, how they can can't. they explain this massive you know um similarities across the entire world the atheist would have to say oh well you know maybe uh you know the faith well the theist can say well the god has revealed these different religions they all came from the same source that's why they're the same and their differences can be explained through human change the atheist would have to say something like um uh these beliefs were invented by completely separate people and they caught on because they were evolutionarily helpful right they, they have like some kind of survival advantage um which allows over thousands of years them to persist uh do you have any would you have any thoughts on that or do you have any thoughts on that it's not really clear what the evolutionary advantage is that would allow them to survive more mm. if uh particularly in an atheistic world if there's no god to begin with why mm. praying to god or evoking a god would help them to run away from a rabid beast or tiger or something there's no there's no evolutionary real benefit to it from... in fact there's an evolutionary sacrifice yeah i you think you give so. up your time your wealth yeah your energy yeah devoting into devotional practices yeah you know and also evolution can't explain the similarity of belief for example the existence of an afterlife heaven and hell yeah the existence of um angels yeah you know mm. all of these kind of quite specific things pilgrimage and the, the process pilgrimage, of pilgrimages divine revelation even mm. yeah and uh you know god communicating with with people yeah and you know through all loads of you know prophets or all prophets i guess god revealed these things and it seems from an atheistic perspective i think like there's so many differences in religions and that everything is so scattered and there's so many different sects and beliefs mm. but it's too superficial the way they look at it because i think yeah. you have to look at the original sources mm. and then actually see what did these prophets what do these individuals actually teach and you do find this real commonality yeah i mean yeah that that's a perfect answer i mean i think if you if you're like the the fourth caliph of our community said you know if you're you're bowing down to God, you know, while this, you know, animal or this typhoon comes and destroys you, it doesn't help you. you know, especially have this elaborate theology around it, which if God doesn't exist, it has no evolutionary benefit. So the, the atheistic theory is all of these random people across the world came up with pretty much the, you know, a very similar idea set at least. Mm. This gave them such an advantage in their own lives that it caught on in all of their tribes yeah. and their tribes had such an advantage that they outcompeted all the other tribes and were allowed to propagate this. I mean, mm. this, is, this is just fantasy. Mm. There's no validity on that. And if it is it. so evolutionarily beneficial, why are they fighting against it? <laughs> I mean, they should be like, keep it quiet, guys. This is going to benefit us evolutionarily. Yes, God. The afterlife. Good deeds. Very good. You know, that's what they should be like. Yeah, exactly. They shouldn't be railing against it. He's made an entire YouTube channel out of fighting against something which is of such immense evolutionarily, uh, evolutionary benefic be benefit. to come around the entire world. <laughs> like, no humans have survived without it. I mean, it. why is he trying to force human beings backwards? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, clearly thing. it had a benefit, right? Yeah. Even from an atheistic framework. Yeah. And the fact that religions have survived this long as well. Mm. He's talking about Saudi Arabia being 95% Muslim. Well, why are they 95% Muslim? It's because each generation teaches the next generation how to pray, how to fast, how to do all these practices. Mm. And if there was no benefit to them at all, you know, they'd have died out if they weren't from a... Well, they'd have abandoned them. They'd have abandoned them, yeah. 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 yeah but as the Quran says, Allah causes that to persist in the earth, which is a benefit. Yeah, you know, mm. you know, and and that same argument could be used against the atheists because they'll, they'll they often say, you know, um, you, it's a slightly separate argument, but you you're just a product of your environment. 
Mm. It's like, well, you're a product of your environment as well. (laughs) 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 It just so happens the people born in the West these days are agnostic atheists. Yeah, it's not like they're all like genetically superior in theology. (laughs) Like it's Mm. just that's just their environment. Exactly. So it doesn't does it's not a claim for or against their own beliefs. And in fact, the the final point I think you know needs to be emphasised here is that the origin of religions is starkly contrasted with the picture that he paints. Yeah. He paints the picture of a society which a person is born and they adopt the faith of their grandfather and their father and their ancestors. The origin of faiths is the exact opposite. Mm. You know, Mm. the Prophet Muhammad came along and said, I reject the idolatry of my ancestors. He Mm. reveals a scripture, a a scripture is revealed through him, which says, you and your ancestors and that which you worshipped was the fuel of hell. Yeah. Right, it's the it, it ends in spiritual destruction, mm. okay, and social degeneration. Mm. You know, Jesus comes along and he overturns the marketplace, or he he denounces the uh, the 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 religious clergy at the time. Moses comes along and he says to the Egyptian Pharaoh, "You know, let the people of Israel go with me. You should worship the one God and give up the worship of Pharaohs." Mm. Right? Okay. So all of them are Buddha. Re- Buddha. Buddha came along and said, stop worshipping all these Hindu Hindu deities. There's only yeah. one God and, you know, the road to him is through me. You must follow me. Yeah. So all of them are, by necessity, they are revolutionary figures who make a clear break with their ancestry. Yeah. And, and they all improve society, like, markedly. They, mm. you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, got rid of all these barbaric practices, like, mm. yeah. you know, and abolished slavery and all of these kind of things. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that paints a picture as to... Female infanticide. Yeah. And I guess that paints a picture as to who God is as well. And, you know, as God is beneficent and sends these prophets in order to cause these revolutions that cause such benefit to people. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a very good point, which is that the 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 history of the world is the history of prophets. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah the history of mankind is... A, it's yeah. not the history of philosophers. It's not the history of Hume and David Belinsky necessarily. I love David Belinsky, but God bless him. But it's not the, It's not the history of philosophers, is it? Yeah. It's the history of people who came to, and claimed to be from God. And it is after them that we name our children. And yeah. it is after them that we hope that they will follow in their moral footsteps and spiritual yeah. footsteps. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to start with this, just basically ask the question that uh, science and religion, this has always been an issue about whether they're compatible, whether they're not. Uh, Stephen Jay Gold had this idea of NOMA, which is N-O-M-A. This is the non-overlapping magisterial. Uh, most of our audience is familiar with it, that they can coexist. I feel that they're both uh, contradictory just because of the basic way uh, that both of them work. But I wanted to start with your position. Um, so uh, how would you initially, just to introduce the audience to the topic, uh, address this issue about whether science uh, has made religion obsolete? So firstly, again, thank you very much for having us. We really appreciate it. Um, so I think the key misunderstanding um, and the almost caricature of the religious position is this idea that faith is um, belief without evidence, belief contrary to evidence. And in fairness, to be honest, I think certain religious, certain religions, certain religious people have actually propagated this idea themselves. Often I find in uh, more Christian circles, yeah. and even they would admit this, there's this idea that just have faith. And whenever you have a question, you have just have faith. And it may well be that in certain Muslim circles, people often have the same misconception. But, you know, from our position um, as Ahmadi Muslims, we believe in Iman, which is loosely translated as faith. But what it actually means is belief on the basis of probability, 
belief on the basis of likelihood without complete certainty. So it's not belief in spite of the evidence, it's belief with the evidence, hmm. but without fully knowing, you know, having grasped the thing itself completely. So, um, and this is actually something which is also a scientific thing. Often when in science, you'll actually investigate a hypothesis, you know, you'll, you'll consider the hypothesis, then you'll investigate it, and you may have partial evidence, and on that partial evidence, you decide to continue that research paradigm, and sometimes it will bear fruit, and sometimes it won't. Yeah. Um, so I think this is actually how we approach the questions of God and, you know, all these big metaphysical questions, is we say, from the world around us on a rational basis, is there evidence for the existence of God? And if so, then we have Iman, then we have belief in this. And then what religion tells you to do is it says, take your Iman, take your uh, belief on the basis of probability and turn that into certainty via following the path of the prophet. And that's the key difference, I think, between Iman and faith. Yeah. Is that faith is you have faith, you have faith, and then you die in faith and you'll find out after you're dead whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in Iman, and especially the Ahmadiyya perspective given by Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be on him, who we would consider the promised Messiah and the Imam Mahdi to revive the true teachings of Islam, he said the purpose of faith or Iman, the true faith, is that it leads you to a stage whereby God responds to you, reveals himself to you, speaks to you, mm. whereby you will have certainty in this life. And he said, if you don't attain certainty in this life, you're actually on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so my question on, on this is that I get the point of probability. You're absolutely right. Then. You know, you go with a lot of times proof in science and, you know, we're all from scientific backgrounds. Uh, proof in science is a bad word, right? What you want to do is you want to go with uh, evidence in support of. So we mm -hmm. always say evidence in support of, uh, even when, when uh, there are certain ideas <laughs> that have been established as fact, like the theory of evolution, we still call it a theory because it's a work in progress, right? We have evidence in support of uh, the, the theory of evolution. Uh, the problem for me is the jump that you make from that to certainty. So there are a lot of times probability. Initially, well, if we that's your problem, can I, can I jump in before you reach that area? Yeah. Because I have a well, problem with before that. Yeah, but l let, me just, let me just finish what I'm saying. Uh, so initially we talked about how, uh, you know, we were going to uh, make this topic has, has science made God obsolete. Uh, but uh, we change it to has science made religion obsolete? Which is kind of a, we'll get into the topic of that later. Uh, but one of the problems, like I, I'm, when it comes to a higher intelligence in the universe, when it comes to can the laws of nature be God? Can the Big Bang be God? I mean, people are talk about these things, and and for me, it's a matter of semantics. It's a matter of, uh, you know, yes, like I, I'm agnostic when it comes to that. I am actually agnostic. Okay. I'm only more atheistic when it comes to religion. For me, the problem is certainty. When you make that jump from the probability evidence in support of to absolute certainty that I have faith, that this means that because I have this level of probability, that means that God is real. God wrote books. God blesses marriages a lot. You know, he told us, uh, you know, who to have sex with, who not to have sex with. He, he told us what we could eat and what not to eat. And we are certain about this. We are 100% sure that this happened. That jump is, uh, to me, what sort of the and the, what your definition of faith. I, I wish more people had that definition of faith. But the vast majority of people who are religious, not just Muslim, but the vast majority of people who are religious, they think of faith as certainty. They don't just go yeah. with probability, but they actually can, make. Can that I move. actually counter what Ali is saying? I disagree with Ali, and, and the second part, actually, I agree with That's you guys. We're off at a good. We're off to a good start. This is great. Thank you, Armin. <laughs> no, because, okay, so because 
at some point when something has a higher high probability, high enough probability for practical reasons, you treat it as certain. Is that and I, I, I think we. Yeah, and I agree with you guys. I agree with you guys on the second part. I disagree with you guys on the first part. The first part, you're just describing science. You're just saying, oh, uh, what is Iman? Let's define it in a way that is, and the way you define it is like just a way of doing science. Like, oh, we're looking for evidence before we, and we assign probability in things based on the evidence that we find for it. Uh, and therefore, science hasn't made religion obsolete. Well, that is just science. That is, you're describing I'm science. <laughs> what? There, yeah. There, there are two things. Uh, I think we maybe maybe didn't communicate. Perhaps we didn't get our, our concept fully across. We don't mean to say that you have faith and you trust, and therefore it becomes certainty um, because you really, really, really believe in it. Right? Mm. There are cases of that. For example, if I said to you, who's your father? Most people will be able to say, my father is X or Y. And if you ask, have you... Do you have any evidence for that they have no evidence like in terms of a genetic test but they believed it all their life on the basis of trust in their mothers in fact all fathers believe who their children are on the basis of trust in their wives and girlfriends so trust at a high level does become certainty but that's not what we're talking about here what we are talking about is is that um you know we believe that so Mirza the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said that observation of nature and of the universe can only take you to the position of saying that God should exist that there is a rational need for God, right? That there is a rational need for God, or God should exist. To go to the stage of certainty, you have to literally have, be spoken to by God on an individual level, as an individual person. You need to have experienced communication from God. And he said that a religion that cannot lead you to the position whereby God actually communicates with you personally is actually a false religion. It's lost its way because it's no longer in contact with God. And he and said. He said, sorry, just last thing I'll say is that he said that there are all these books, like mm. the Bible and the Quran, that say that God spoke to X, Y, and Z. Well, if mm. God still exists, then why doesn't he speak today? It must be because there's something that's changed about you, not changed about God. So that's our concept of religion. Our concept of religion is not that you just have belief and it becomes certainty by your conviction. Okay, let's take all of that that he said. How do you know that any of that is true? Because we experience it. You experience and what? Actually, on, on two levels, can I answer that? So... On, firstly, is the level of uh, divine scripture, for instance. So if you see in uh, scripture or in the prophecies of someone who claims to be a prophet, you see things which you don't think could have been fulfilled by chance, statements which come true, or for instance, you know, prophecies in the Holy Quran, then that on a scriptural level is um, a basis for a greater level of certainty. But then when it happens in your own life as well, and when you're, for instance, conveyed things by God and they come true and this happens in a repeated way, then this itself becomes a, a, a foundation for your certainty. And that's what, okay. that is the Islamic concept. That's what it was from the time so of and That's what the Hazrat uh, Rasulullah Muhammad revived in this age in our belief. So you have two things to know. These are true prophecies that could not have, you're saying couldn't have been true, uh, couldn't, must be, be, proves all of this, and also your own experience. Can you give us an example for each one? Like your own, okay, like sure. when you say, yeah. First, yeah. your own experience. Like what did you actually experience that made so, you... So personally, personally, I don't personally, I don't personally want to put out my experiences because they're personal mm. to me. And to be perfectly honest, it's not going to convince you anyway. Mm. So there's no okay. point in me doing that. It's not for you, it's for me. But we haven't well, been commissioned for And we haven't been commissioned. I've been commissioned by God to go around telling my personal experiences. I know that they delivered certainty myself, and I tell my close, close friends about it. But forgive me if I just don't want to um, open it up okay. to the whole. Internet. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, 
the but second it, thing, the, the second yeah. thing I will say is that if you go online, for example, the founder of our the our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is led by um, a caliph, a peace, a caliph of peace, a peaceful man. Yeah. So you can find a a text, a PDF online, published in two thousand and five or so, which says um, dreams and revelations foretelling the next caliph, the caliph, the fifth caliphate of the Ahmadiyya community, and that is a compilation of I'd say probably about a hundred to hundred and fifty people's personal experiences that they documented and wrote in um, stating who they're in that who God had told them was the next caliph in terms of the name in terms of the person in terms of many many factors and they range from true dreams to visions to verbal revelations while they're awake and, and also okay, one, there's just the second part he asked is what's an example of, of a problem and there are many converse stories on our website rationalreligion.co.uk whereby people community ask God for, for guidance and they're people who live today their photos are on the thing you can see their their, their identity but and they had we, personal experience you must know that we have examples like this for almost every religion right right so or every main yes. religion yeah and the other thing is uh, I wanted to say and we don't we talk about we don't uh, what? We talk... sorry what we don't deny that yeah you um, don't deny those other religions no 